It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Morning. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. The program includes the transformation of American unions on the matter of foreign policy in Israel and Gaza. It could be historic, listeners. Stay tuned. That's right, Ralph. Working people of the world are uniting against the Israeli genocide in Gaza. Our first guest today will be Gene Bruskin, a veteran of the labor movement, as a local union president, an organizer, and campaign coordinator for numerous local and national unions. He has done extensive international labor solidarity work, including with Iraqi workers and unions, and is a founder of U.S. Labor Against the War. Mr. Bruskin has joined more than one million workers in a national labor network for a ceasefire. Their call for a ceasefire in Gaza has been signed by chapters of the American Postal Workers Union, Amazon Labor Union, American Federation of Teachers, United Auto Workers, and dozens more local and national union chapters. We look forward to speaking with Gene Bruskin about the impact of labor mobilizing on issues of foreign policy. In the second half of the show, we'll welcome historian Rick Perlstein. Mr. Perlstein has done deep dives into figures like Barry Goldwater, Richard Nixon, and Ronald Reagan, and the political movements and social forces that brought them to power. He is now working on a new book about Donald Trump and the MAGA movement, and we're going to get his analysis of why Donald Trump appears to have a stranglehold on the American right that defies all logic. As always, somewhere along the line, we'll check in with our unwavering corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, in our continuing coverage of the Israeli government's ethnic cleansing in Gaza, we turn now to how the labor movement is joining the fight. David? Gene Bruskin is a veteran of the labor movement as a local union president, an organizer, and campaign coordinator for numerous local and national unions. He's done extensive international labor solidarity work, including with Iraqi workers and unions, and as a founder of U.S. Labor Against the War. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Gene Bruskin. It's a pleasure to be here, David. I've been a longtime follower of, of Ralph's. Thank you very much, Gene. You've been quite active in reaching labor unions on the genocide going on in Gaza, and it hasn't gotten as much coverage as it should. Because traditionally, uh, organized labor unions have been very pro-Israeli government policies, and now there's a change underway. What has changed in the labor movement? This is uh, rather remarkable. Give us your take. And in the last two months since this statement, has it been expanding? Yeah, the good news in terms of the labor movement, who in general, I believe, are in a new moment, both as a labor movement, but here in this case, around the international solidarity. In the period of time, beginning around that time in December until now, we now have unions representing over 9 million workers who've called for a ceasefire. We're talking 10 national unions, and we're also talking 220 local unions all over the country and some central labor councils, which are the sort of area combinations of unions that are technically part of the AFL-CIO. We're talking the Texas AFL-CIO called for a ceasefire. And even 
finally, with all this sort of bottom-up pressure, the AFL-CIO itself has come out for a ceasefire. Not a powerful statement, but nonetheless, they broke their silence. So I think that in my experience, Ralph, and my sort of having studied the history a little bit, never in the 140-year history of the labor movement, starting in the AFL formation in 1885, has there been such a broad-scale resistance to U.S. government policy in the middle of a conflict like this. It's just never happened before. Are these unions also trying to block the $14 billion of additional aid that Biden is pushing through Congress to provide even more weaponry for the Israeli military assault on Gaza? We call it the genocide tax, $14 billion. Where are the labor unions who have taken a stand on this regarding this bill, which is now about to be put before the House of Representatives, having passed with a Ukraine aid bill in the Senate? I can't speak for every one of them because they play somewhat different roles. But in general, the breakthrough has been from silence to demanding the, the ceasefire and the humanitarian aid and the democratic process or diplomatic process going forward. That next step is going forward is on the table now in a different manner. We've never been able to have these kind of conversations. I myself went to the occupied territories in, I think it was 1988, as part of a labor delegation that was sponsored by the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee a moderate Arab group. And we were there to investigate the conditions for Palestinian workers. And when we came back, we conducted a hearing at the Commerce Department protesting the fact that Israel was given a special tax preferences, I think it's the GPS or there's some government act that says that if the country violates labor rights, you could lose some of your tax preferences on trade. And of course, we lost that argument. And the AFL-CIO was on the other side advocating for Israel in this situation. When I came back, I tried to talk to the labor movement, and I was resoundingly rejected. Nobody would talk to me, or when we met, they would more yell than talk. So the idea of Israeli bonds, investments, the defense that we're providing, the money, et cetera, wasn't on the table. Now I feel like we are moving forward into a position where the whole relationship between the United States and Israel can be reexamined. And really, this ceasefire, as urgently as we need it today, yesterday, regardless of the outcome, this issue is going to be on our table for months and years to come. And so I think we're in a position to advocate in a different way. And I intend to sort of try and work with, with folks to see if we could change things really dramatically and also understand our own role as a labor movement in sort of facilitating these problems. I would venture to say that 95% or more of members of the labor movement have no idea that our movement is a big investor in Israeli bonds. So that's a conversation needs to be had. Tell our listeners who may not know this also, the decades of meetings, banquets, boosterism, by the pro-Israeli government lobby in this country for unions to buy 
with union funds, Israeli bonds, which have not produced the kind of returns that these funds would have received if they invested in U.S. treasuries or bonds that produced money to improve local communities. You know, Israel, in the same way that Israel has had a very active network of like bringing young Jews over to Israel and giving them the guided tour and winding them and dining them and sort of trying to build their support forever. They have consistently, year after year after year, taken labor leaders over to Israel. They meet with Histadrut, which is the Israeli labor organization, but really in, in many ways part of the Israeli government, not really in any traditional sense, an independent labor movement, and give them the sort of guided tour. And there are parts of Israel that look very impressive if you only see sections of it. They also have traditionally had these dinners sponsored by the Jewish Labor Committee and Histadrut in this country, where Jewish labor leaders are honored. And so the constant effort to secure the Israeli support, the support of Israel, is like been an ongoing thing and unchallenged in the labor movement for many years. And so for those labor leaders who themselves are very connected to Israel, it might have been an easier sell. And for other labor leaders who really weren't, maybe they got on a tour or maybe they just thought, you know, okay, you know, I got a no problem here. And so it sort of existed under the radar and I don't have the figures, but we're talking hundreds of millions, maybe billions. And I feel like that's part of the influence we need to be welding going forward, both with Israel and also with our president, who we're going to be very actively advocating for his election to whether you disagree with him or not, because we don't want Donald Trump, and he depends on the labor movement. And this new effort, we've formed this thing called Labor for Ceasefire. And that is this combining most of these unions that have taken positions for ceasefire and bringing them together in a series of conversations to begin to pressure Biden and the Congress. We're going to be releasing on the next couple of days a public press release, and it's going to be pointing people to the website laborforceasefire.org. That's going to be a founding place with all the official support of these national and local unions for local members to go, to be educated, to have toolkits. We're also working on the possibility next week of having a webinar, Labor for Ceasefire webinar, where we hope to get on thousands and thousands of members across the country to advocate for them to speak up, to organize, and to put pressure on Congress and the president. We're talking with Gene Gruskin. Gene, why on Capitol Hill is this transformative movement in labor on the Gaza massacre and the demand for ceasefire and hundreds of trucks of daily humanitarian aid coming in, which is not happening. Why isn't it changing any of the votes? It's almost like people on Capitol Hill don't want to recognize the change that's going on in the organized labor movement. They don't want to admit that this is going on. How do you read that? It, it is sort of astounding. But I feel like we're in this moment where it, it's sort of almost inconceivable to try and figure out what's in both President Biden's mind and so many members of Congress. 
And what a lot of the labor leaders are doing previous to this, before we formed this labor for ceasefire.org, is leaders of these large national unions, and we're talking at SAIU with 2 million members, we're talking the auto workers, you know, very prominent these days, National Education Association with several million workers, members, have been calling the president, calling the White House, talking to the campaigns and saying, please, you know, not only for moral and humanitarian purposes, but there's an election coming up. You're losing, for instance, in Michigan, where you're losing the Arab population. You can't win without them. Many of our members are Arabs. We're losing some of our best young activists. These are the people who we ask to get on the phone and phone bank for you and who are most excited. And of course, everybody sees the younger Jews who don't have that sort of historical attachment to Zionism have been leading a lot of these fights. And so the message has been being given again and again, just on a strictly pragmatic basis. We can't do that. But I think that that it's sort of it's sort of a combination of the years and years of effective lobbying by Israel. And of course, Congress is frequently on these trips to Israel. The influence of the Jewish institutions and Main Street Judaism and groups like APAC, who've been able to wield a lot of money, and the ironic combination with the Christian Zionists, who are the most dedicated Zionist and pro-Israel group almost in the country, who are total Trumpers, but who weigh in powerfully on all these messages even though the ultimate thing for Christian Zionism is that that when the Messiah comes back to Israel, everybody will go to Israel and you either convert and go to heaven or everybody, all the Jews and everybody else will die. So if these are our friends, this is pretty, uh, uh, speaking as a Jew, this is pretty ironic, but they wield an incredible amount of weight. So Congress, with a few exceptions, are opting to take the conservative road. And APAC, interestingly enough, that weighs in and has prevented a lot of progressive congresspeople from winning in these recent years. When they oppose a progressive congressperson who they know is bad on Israel, they often don't do it based on their position on Israel. They find some other reason because they know that in general, it's not a way to sort of defeat somebody because the popular sentiment is very mixed. Here's something that will fortify your effort, Gene Bruskin. On February 13th, the Veterans for Peace, which has members who are union people as well Mm -hmm. as veterans, put a a public letter to the State Department's Inspector General to investigate illegal shipments of weapons and numerous violations of federal law involving Israel at the present time. And what's so amazing about this is it's more than just a declaration or demand that this detailed letter, which our listeners can get by going to veteransforpeace.org, lists all the federal statutes that are being violated by the State Department's unconditional transfer of weapons to Israeli military at the present time, and also the lack of enforcing these laws from the White House and Congress. What do you think this can do to improve the alliance of your unions with Veterans for Peace? 
First, I'll say that I'm pretty sure I signed on to that letter, and I was part of a grouping of labor activist folks that sort of combined with Veterans for Peace to move that. Here's what's partly what's going on, Ralph, and I'm speaking really not right now, I'm speaking for myself, you know, on behalf of the labor network and speaking as someone that's been active in the labor movement for a long time, that that labor has initially backed during from the FDR period, labor has tied itself to the Democratic Party, lock, stop, and bow. And it's gotten to the point where, on the one hand, although labor, the Democratic Party, it would almost be impossible for them to win without the deep support of the labor movement, not just of our money, but because so many thousands and thousands of our members are mobilized to do the phone banking and the door-to-door work and all. And yet, despite the fact that the party completely depends on the labor movement. The labor movement has made itself in many ways dependent on a party and has been very, very reluctant to break with the leadership of the party or the Democratic president on almost any issue except very quietly. And that is a mode that we have to sort of break through because the changes that we want in the labor movement are not going to be led by the Democratic Party. They just aren't. And I think the UAW strikes and the position of Sean Fain and the perspective of Sean Fain, where he had that same view toward the employers, where rather than saying our prosperity of yours prosperity is my prosperity, he said, no, our interests are not fundamentally tied together. Our interests are in conflict and we're going to stand for the workers. The labor movement has to understand that there's a lot of contradictions in the Democratic Party, and we cannot allow the party to define our interest. And on foreign policy, the idea has been long time proposed in the labor movement that our national interests require us to do this kind of foreign policy or this war, the Vietnam War or Iraq. But really, What we did in our organization, U.S. Labor Against the War, during the Iraq War, where we actually built real solidarity with Iraqi workers and brought them all over the country here, was we said the national interests of the corporations is not the same as the national interest of the average worker. Our interests don't necessarily, in many cases, align, and they can be the opposite. And I feel like these lessons that started to come out during the UAW fight and some of these other independent labor fights, and now through this activity of the public speaking out of of the labor movement, is opening up the doors where we can begin to refine and define our interests much more sharply. And the kind of things that you're laying out here and the way we see foreign policy has to be completely redefined. And I'm hoping that we can now have these discussions and the link, understanding that foreign policy and domestic policy are inextricably bound. And we see right now when there's a huge amount of needs in this country for health care, housing, and everything else, what are we doing? We're spending all our time and money on war, and we're not talking about those issues whatsoever. We have to flip that, and I'm optimistic we can do that. And all empires, including the U.S. empire, eventually devour themselves domestically as we have funneled trillions of dollars in destructive wars overseas. We have starved the public funds 
that would otherwise address the necessities of all the American people, including families and children here at home. I see this new energy coming out of your work and others, Gene, as possibly spilling over. So someday we will see that when unions endorse Democratic presidents, they make demands in return. They should not have simply endorsed Biden, as the UAW did, and others without demanding a public commitment to card check to facilitate union organizing around the country, to universal health insurance, to an authentic support of a higher minimum wage instead of just rhetoric. SEIU led the way in that, not the Democratic Party at the state level. What do you think of this early endorsement of Democrats, and this has happened in other years as well, without making any demands? Yeah. As a retiree, I'm helping with the organizing, but I don't have an official capacity to speak for all these unions. But it's part of what I was speaking about before, that we completely underestimate the enormous power that we have. And where we see on the right that, you know, they're not going to endorse a candidate unless they make their position clear and being anti-choice and so on and so forth. We haven't done that. But in this particular movement, what has been interesting, Ralph, is that it has been a groundswell of activity for workers in their locals all across the country. And at the same time, this movement at the top, where the presidents of these unions and their leaders are beginning to reconsider. And every one of these decisions, Ralph, uh, like the National Nurses Union, for example, They got a couple hundred thousand workers spread out in Texas, Florida, everywhere. They couldn't just come out for a ceasefire, no matter what the president thought. They went through these processes and these conversations. And same thing with the NEA, just had a meeting of 175 of their leaders last weekend before taking this position. So the engagement and the conversation about foreign policy, about Israel, about the Democratic Party is all underway right now in a way that, at least in my memory, it hasn't been. And the question's challenge for us is going to be, can we build on this and change our stance going forward? Well, this is very promising. It could be historic, too, because labor has been far too quiet. Labor unions and their leaders far too cozy with the Democratic Party because they always say the Republican Party is so much worse. But that doesn't mean they can avoid their duty for the rank and file to really influence the Democratic Party all the way down to candidates at the state and local level and get really aggressive. And the younger generation seems to be listening to your call, Gene, and that's very encouraging. As you say, it's all interconnected. It's a seamless web. When injustice gets entrenched at the highest levels, It affects people at the lowest levels, and you can get a lot of left-right support around the country because when they are abused and disregarded and ripped off, all people bleed the same color, regardless whether they call themselves conservatives and liberals. What would you say to the rank and file who might say to you, union membership in America is hovering at a 100-year low? Aren't there members of the rank and file who might say unions shouldn't have a foreign policy, unions shouldn't even have a domestic policy, unions have a fiduciary duty to focus solely on worker safety and good paying jobs. Aren't there members of the union who might say this is a wedge issue 
that hurt solidarity? Absolutely. This has been one of the fundamental debates, you know, at least in my time during uh, 30, 40, it's actually getting on 45 years that I've been involved, but especially more recently during the forming U.S. labor against the war, that came up again and again. We're, wait a minute, I'm in a union here. You're supposed to represent me in the workplace and negotiate my contract. What does this have to do with it? So first and foremost, during the uh, rock area, we said, first of all, you're paying for this. Second of all, you're much more likely to die for this war. And people stood up and said, my brother, I just want to say my brother is in a hospital, just lost his leg in Iraq, you know? And, I, and so you can't tell me. I have no right to take a position on this. And so the idea beyond that, that the priorities of our government being tied to a lousy foreign policy, where, for example, during the 80s, when there was agitation and labor support for solidarity in Central America, labor jobs were being shipped to Central America to low-wage factories there. And while at the same time we were blocking the support for those kind of movements for higher wages and against the U.S. exploitation. So unions jumped in and opposed that. The education of members that it is not unpatriotic, and matter of fact, it is necessary for the average working person, and that you, member, have an organization with a voice. You are paying dues to an organization that might have 300,000 members. You have an opportunity to have a voice that most citizens don't. And we have to speak out. This is our country and our foreign policy as much as it is anybody else. We've been speaking with Gene Bruskin, one of the leaders of transforming labor unions into a wider arc of struggling for justice and standing up for those who are succumbing to violent assaults, especially now in Gaza. And we hope that we'll have you on again and we hope that you'll get far more visibility and get a congressional hearing in the House and Senate because positions of labor unions on this issue have represented millions of workers around the country. They deserve a voice on Capitol Hill. Thank you very much, Gene Bruskin. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Gene Bruskin. We will link to his work at RalphNaderRadioHour.com. Up next, we're going to visit Trump World. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, February 16, 2024. I'm Russell Mokhyber. A sweeping recall of cheese and other dairy products linked to a lethal listeria outbreak is expanding to include snacks, dips, dressings, wraps, salad, and taco kits so that major retailers, including Amazon, Costco, Sprouts Farmers Market, Trader Joe's, and Walmart, that's according to a report from CBS News, the still-growing array of products impacted began more than a month ago on January 11th with a Modesto, California-based Rizzo Lopez Foods announcing a nationwide recall of 344 cases of aged Cotija Mexican grating cheese after Hawaiian officials found listeria in a sample. At least 26 people in 11 states have been stricken in the ongoing outbreak. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Hannah and Ralph and the rest of the team. The author of Nixon Land and Reagan Land is going to help us figure out Trump world. 
David? Rick Perlstein is an historian and chronicler of American conservatism. He is the author of Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America, Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater, and the Unmaking of the American Consensus, and Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Rick Perlstein. Thanks, David. It's truly an honor. Yeah, welcome, Rick. Your past biographies portray that the Trump phenomena was preceded by a lot of breakdowns of norms and qualities of campaigning and Nixon's violations and Reagan's sweet-talking fantasies and so forth. So we did this book, Mark Green and I, called Wrecking America on Donald Trump in 2020. And in the last chapter, we tried to address our remarks respectfully to Trump voters. And we basically said, look, what do you want from politicians? Why do you think he has such a large number, maybe 40% at least of the voters who turn out, for starters, of diehard supporters who totally disregard lying, corruption, shutting down health and safety agencies, protecting workers, scuttling child protections, behavior of sexual harassment against women, and, you know, just jeering at the protections for the tens of millions of poor people in this country. And there are poor people who support Trump. So why do you think he has this grip on them as a scholar of American presidents? Yes, thanks, Ralph. That's a great question. And it's a very complicated question that could and probably should have a very complicated answer. But there's also a very simple answer to give, and it really only requires one word. And that's that you need to study in order to understand this, fascism. So fascism is something that is pretty much diametrically opposed to the premise of the question, which is that what one does to choose a leader, let's say hire a leader, is find the person using your reason and logic and evidence who's most competent, who can most achieve the goals that you want here on the ground. That's the enlightenment. That's the way traditionally liberals think and modern people think. But there's also an atavistic way of thinking about politics, a way that kind of goes back to the primal past, one in which the leader is really just a symbol of restoring a fictionalized, mythologized, lost greatness. And that's a fascist tradition. And what fascism really means at base, and why I use this word, you know, not as an insult, but as a descriptor, and the question you ask and the examples you give are a perfect example of why it's so important to get your mind around this concept, even though it's an ugly one, is that it's a mythos. It's a myth space. It's a, literally a space of lies. It's a set of lies that make people feel good. It's a fairy tale. And the more you go down the list, he's done this wrong, he's not achieved this, he's incompetent at this, he lies about that, the more people can just kind of stick their fingers in their ears and say, go back to these primal feelings like of the father is going to protect us, the mother who's going to nurture us, almost like a regression back to a political childhood. And that's one reason. You can also say that people who support Donald Trump might acknowledge that he lies, that he cheats, that he steals. 
But since fascism divides the world into an us and a them, a heroic group of people and their enemies who are out to destroy them, they'll say, oh, well, he's lying and cheating and stealing on behalf of us, on behalf of the normal people. And he does so in order to defeat this transcendent evil. Look at how they speak about Democrats, liberals, competent expert bureaucrats who use scientific expertise to answer the hardest questions in order to govern in the public interest. He calls them the deep state. It makes it seem like they're monsters, literal monsters. This idea that he is lying in order to tell the truth, lying in order to defeat evil, is also part of this, quite frankly, fascist way of thinking. Let's look, Rick, at his powerful short messages and mm -hmm. see if you can explain them. In the last days of his campaign against Hillary Clinton in 2016, he kept saying, this is our last chance. That was his quote. And now he's saying to his crowds again and again, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. Mm -hmm. And I'm just standing in their way. And those are quotes. What does he mean by that? Who are they? And what does last chance mean? Yes, also a very kind of non-scientific, non-technical, non-logical, nonsensical way of thinking. They is they. You wake up in the morning and you feel some force out there is getting in the way of some mythicalness, and it's they. Traditionally, it's been Jews. <laughs> it's been the financial elites who are not understood as people that public policy can defeat, but that some kind of magic superhero, the Fuhrer, can defeat. I mean, this is a perfect example in the last few weeks. We're talking about starving, vulnerable people from places that American foreign policy have turned into charnel houses, people like from places like Venezuela and Guatemala. And these are the best kind of people, the courageous people who are so determined to make a life for themselves and their family that they're willing to endure the most unimaginable hardships to get themselves to America, just like the Jews leaving Germany and the, the USS St. Louis, 800 people who sailed from Germany in the late 1930s, were the best kind of people. Well, in the Trumpian frame, which of course has been adapted by 25 Republican governors, they are quote unquote, invaders. It's like they're people in landing boats on Normandy Beach. They're going to kill you. And if you listen to people like Steve Bannon, if you listen to people like Alex Jones, if you listen to every right-wing talk radio host, these mothers and children, these families who are just like our families generations ago, I like to say on Twitter when these right-wingers go after me, I'm, if America had the same policies that you want now or that we had in 1924 when it comes to migrants, I'd be a bar of soap. This idea that these people who would obviously be the best Americans, the best people to have in a society, are the worst people and invaders and are all criminals. And of course, another quote, they're sending another rapist. That was Donald Trump's introduction to American politics. And, you know, there's a lot going on there. Psychologically, the fact that, you know, migrants work so hard and are so determined, it's scary because you have to compete with them. And these feelings of dispossession, of vulnerability, of weakness, really kind of get at the darkest and most easily manipulated parts of the human mind that are based on the most kind of primal fears. Stuff like fears of snakes fear of cockroaches, fear of dark things that go bump in the night. And those are there in our brains. They're in the lowest parts of our brains. And what the Republican Party has been doing for decades 
you can even take it back to Joseph McCarthy or even the Ku Klux Klan, even though the, the Klan was, you know, bipartisan, is they're exploiting that kind of animal part of the brain in order to aggrandize their own power. And it's, you know, really, really scary. And one of the things that makes it, again, so scary is it is precisely not amenable to rational persuasion. So trying to kind of make these arguments, the Trumpists, maybe we, you've done it to your friends and neighbors and coworkers, can feel like kind of trying to pedal a bicycle when the chain won't catch the gears. How about the Democratic Party providing a vast vacuum instead of filling it in with the New Deal bread and butter issues? They pushed for corporate managed trade. Loved the idea of all these factories hollowing out communities and going to China and Mexico, creating real resentment among blue collar workers. The Democrats on the East and West Coast seem to have forgotten about rural people. They've lost the contact that. Harry Truman, Frank and Donald Roosevelt had with blue collar workers, 30 some percent of AFL member unions actually voted for Trump in 2020. This has gotten so bad that Trump is shaving off some percentages of black and Hispanic voters from the Democratic voting tally. What about the Democratic Party responsibility here? They share it. Now let's give credit where it's due. I, I'm a very big fan of taking yes for an answer. Joe Biden has done a lot to repair this wound. Something like the CHIPS Act is literally building factories all over the country. And they're focusing on building high-tech factories with good jobs in Southern red states. But you can't just repair a breach that has taken 30 years to build in one election cycle in one year. When Bill Clinton passed NAFTA and he signed it, this is a quote. I have it right here in my, my book manuscript. He promised, quote unquote, 2,000 new jobs in the country by 1995 alone. But a 2010 study estimated that, in fact, 700,000 jobs were lost. So, you know, that's a trauma. You know, this is hollowed out communities. You've seen them. I've seen them. And it was a real abdication of, you know, the basically the magic trick that generations of Democrats have used to win the loyalty of working class voters, which is basically vote for us and we will increase your chances of having a secure middle-class life. Now, we have the CHIPS Act on one hand, and someone like Lena Khan, who's doing great work breaking up monopolies. But on the other hand, it was basically proven <laughs> that the government can spend lots of money to make people more economically secure in just the way that happens in places like Northern Europe during COVID. You had things like checks being sent to families. You had broadband access that was a lifesaver to a lot of communities. And the Democratic Party is not the kind of party that says, wow, we can use this and sustain these things that we were able to put in during an emergency to shore up our power forever. Instead, as soon as they had the chance, they took them away. So, I mean, on one hand, the Democrats give it, and the one other hand, they take it away. And you all know the history of how that happened. You know, I write about it in my book, Reaganland. A lot of it was, you know, and this is why it's such a pleasure and an honor to talk to you, Ralph was specifically a reaction to the success you were having delivering security and safety and decency to ordinary people. And so the way to take it back to the dark ages, the way the Democratic Party responded to the shocking success of Ronald Reagan in 1980 was, wow, maybe we need to give them some of what he's giving. And Ralph, you remember Dan Rostenkowski. He was the chairman of the Ways and Means very, very powerful Democrat from my hometown of Chicago, who, you know, spent decades basically spreading the wealth in that New Deal fashion. 
when Reagan won in 1980 and said, you know, I'm going to exercise my mandate by liberating the animal spirits of the economy by cutting corporate taxes, Dan Rostenkowski didn't say no way. He tried to outflank him on the right. He said, business deserves his, its decade and I'm going to give it to them. So that kind of response, and you're seeing that same kind of response, unfortunately, among a lot of Democrats who say, well, they're doing pretty well in this immigration issue. What if we promise we can incarcerate more immigrants or we can do it better? Literally, the Lincoln Project has a new commercial out today in which they say, well, if you think that aliens are invading the country and stealing your jobs and are you know, raping your daughters, vote for the Democrats because our bill is really strong in fighting that. And Donald Trump tried to stop it. So, you know, it's almost like, you know, kind of co-opting fascism. And that's not the way to, to go either. You need a strong, bold alternative. And you don't build that overnight. You build that over a generation. One of the amazing contrasts between the Democrats and Republicans, student loans. Biden was pushing for student loan forgiveness for millions of adults who are long from college days. There are 42 million people in this country who have student loans, some of them in their 40s, 50s, 60s even 70s, as they keep rolling over the loans and the interest rates. And Trump wanted to prosecute a lot of these student loan borrowers because of defaults. And he protected the private university scams of these commercial universities that were Why would charging. he do that, Ralph? Why would Donald Trump yeah, and, university scams? I yeah, wonder. <laughs> and why isn't that getting across? That's an issue that's a very interesting one. Everyone should get as much education as they can, if they want. And you know, probably college should be free. But unfortunately, you know, the Democrats have been pushing a little bit of a raw deal for a generation, going back to Clinton, saying, please, 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 please get a college education, shoving loans in their face. You know, in a lot of ways, they shoved loans into farmers' faces and saying, buy bigger and bigger and bigger tractors. But when the market conditions that reward college education began to recede, suddenly people are stuck with these loans just like farmers were stuck with their farms mortgage to the gills when crop prices collapsed because of overproduction. That's almost like a Marxist crisis of overproduction of overeducated people with $100,000 loans. I'm sure a lot of young people feel kind of cheated by that message in itself. So just like it's great that Biden is kind of coming in in the ninth inning and saying, let's build factories to kind of replace the ones NAFTA destroyed, a lot of this loan relief, it's kind of a drop in the bucket compared to the frustration people must feel at having mortgaged their future to a promise that didn't pan out in the first place. So it's great to do. It's really important to do. The Republicans will never do it. I'm sure that there's a lot of that kind of really grim Republican style of class politics behind it. When Biden you know, used an executive order to do loan relief, they all made it seem like everyone who was getting their loan relief had majored in gender studies at Wesleyan or something like that. <laughs> it hadn't gone to places like Trump University or DeVry or a community college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's another part of that mythic dream space. There's good guys, there's bad guys. The bad guys are these rootless elite cosmopolitans who want us all to be woke and want boys to be girls and girls to be boys. And then there are these sturdy blue-collar Americans with flannel shirts, and I'm the one who's going to protect them. So, you know, I mean, you can almost take it back to that whole fascist aesthetic. Here's another contrast that doesn't make sense in terms of not getting through to millions of people. He wants to get rid of Obamacare, and he wants to get rid of the expansion of Medicaid for millions of people during the pandemic, yeah. quite apart from what he did during the pandemic to delay and deny and cause the deaths of tens of thousands of people. 
and he doesn't have anything to replace it in terms of health insurance. It's one thing saying you're against Obamacare and Medicaid, and then you have nothing to replace it. So why isn't this striking fear in the minds of Trump voters? Because there are Trump voters in red states and blue states who would lose out on health insurance, and his policies are not reducing his polls. Why? Because they're not thinking rationally. I mean, if you think about it, the idea that kind of giving people stuff that doesn't cost anything to them, why would they not like that? It's Santa Claus. But that's not how right-wing thinking works. And in fact, when Barack Obama decided that the expansion of Medicaid was the best way to subsidize Americans who weren't below the poverty line but were near it, and he was going to appropriate federal funds to make it free to governors. It cost nothing from their state treasuries. They thought this was a magic bullet. They thought this would be accepted in the spirit which it was given, which was basically a gift by Republican state governors and legislatures. But of course, we know what happened. Republicans said, we refuse. We refuse this free money. We refuse this free gift. Why does that happen? This weird ideology that we all make it on our own. We all pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Somehow, if you're in a hospital bed, you're supposed to be negotiating for the best price or something. I don't know. It, it makes no sense. It's weird. But this goes back before Trump. You wrote an article for The Washington Post about how the Democratic Party's forsaking young voters. Explain mm -hmm. that. That's a really important one. There's a really wonderful book by the absolutely superlative political journalist, Ryan Grimm, who really is the guy in Washington who knows where the bodies are buried in terms of both Democratic and Republican sins against the working class better than anyone else. And it's called The Squad. And it's about the young 20 and 30 year old class of Democratic members of Congress that were first started to be elected in 2020, 2022. And what's really shocking and striking about it is, again, this gift. The Democratic leadership didn't say, oh, isn't this this wonderful gift that we have this new class of young Democratic politicians who are activating young people around the concerns that animate them, things like student loans, things like global warming, things like climate change, things like the precariousness of trying to make it in today's economy. Instead, they kind of saw them as threats. Nancy Pelosi, especially, you know, she mocked AOC. She said the green dream or something. They're into the green dream or something, referring to the the Green New Deal, which was, you know, really was like the New Deal. It was this, it is, this unified vision of how our economy can be rebuilt and jobs can be created around converting the economy. It was a very expansive, bold vision. And instead of saying, wow, these young people who we want to become Democrats for the next 50 years love this stuff, basically they were seen as annoyances, as irritants, as things to swat away. And that's the thinking of a kind of a decadent class of leaders. A decadent class of leaders who, and I'm going to make apologies for, you know, my superannuated friends who I all love, who decide that they're not going to step aside for the next generation. I mean, the fact that we have a guy in Joe Biden who, if he's reelected, will be president until he's 85 years old. That's just not a good way to build for the future. Even if you look like a 50-year-old Adonis, that is just, you have to build for the long term when you're building a political party. And the way you do that is that you pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. Well, the people who became Democrats in 1960 because they were attracted to the torch being passed to their generation are still holding on to power like grim death. And that's decadent. We're talking to Rick Perlstein. That gets to your forthcoming book, which you talk about the last 25 years being afflicted by 
your words, quote, the infernal triangle, end quote. What's the infernal triangle? Well, we talked about two corners of the triangle. We talked about the authoritarian Republicans who are now literally fascists. We talked about the Democrats who have not provided a kind of clear and compelling alternative and fought this with all their worth. The third term is the media that's supposed to explain what's happening, but give people a picture of this actual reality that isn't all that much better than Soviet citizens got from Pravda, right? I mean, they don't learn, you know, what the Republican Party is up to because they have to read about the Democrats and the Republicans as equally responsible for what's happening in America. That's the kind of fundamental professional value that journalists take into work every day, that if there's a problem in America, we have to kind of balance the scales. That's seen as the fairest way. So it's kind of like when a kid goes to a restaurant and he's only three or four years old and he gets put in a booster's chair so he can kind of see eye to eye with the grownups. That's kind of what the, the media does for the Republican Party. They lie, they cheat, they steal. I'm talking about the Republicans. And you know, on the other side, we have this party that kind of are pretty much Boy Scouts when it comes to the rules. You know, their answer to kind of lying and cheating and stealing and saying, well, we should lie, cheat and steal less. And the media basically has to make both sides look just as bad. Now, isn't that a bias, Ralph? Isn't that a bias in favor of the party that's most willing to lie, cheat, and steal? Isn't that a way to systematically deceive the American people about the nature of the problem? You know, the fact that the New York Times has only now, in the last few weeks, been willing to use the word racist to describe Donald Trump when his introduction to the American political scene in 2015 was, if you see a Mexican, you can assume they're a rapist. That's also decadent. And that's an equal contributor to the mess that America is in now as the authoritarianism of the Republicans and the wimpiness of the Democrats. You told uh, Amy Goodman in your interview that the superannuated class of 70, 80-year-old Democrats, and I'm quoting you, believe that the world, when it comes to what's going on in the Middle East, makes any sense to voters in their 20s. It's just a terrible, sad situation. How do you get out of this situation? There's no way to answer that question without sounding like a jerk, you know, Ralph. I mean, you know, old people die and young people take their place, frankly. I mean, the next generation of Americans, I mean, you meet them, I meet them. When you were trying to change the world, you found these idealistic college students. They were the salvation. And, you know, right now, yes. you know, that's the answer, basically, is you have to empower young people. Right now in my book, I'm writing about the Howard Dean campaign, which was treated one of the Democrat consultants called Howard Dean, quote unquote, a pimple on the ass of progress. But this was literally the guy who had 200 college clubs for his political campaign. How many did John Kerry have? One or two? But he, this was the guy who very explicitly built his appeal upon what made sense to young people, one of which was that this war in Iraq made no sense. And the Democratic Party, just like they consider AOC now, considered him a problem. You know, literally, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton drafted Wesley Clark as their kind of magic bullet dark horse to sabotage the campaign of Howard Dean. Now, the fact that all these people had supported the Iraq war and were part of the problem shows that, you know, maybe they were just trying to save face, right? Maybe they didn't like having this guy going around every day during 2004 and pointing out the ways that they, as Democrats, were wrong and part of the problem. So, you know, this- and Howard of, Dean had the effrontery to say that you can't be a national Democratic Party and concede half the country to red state Republican governors. You've got to run in all 50 states. And the Democratic establishment in Washington mocked him, mocked yeah. him for saying the most obvious thing about 
political success. You got a campaign in every state. Yeah, they mock me today. And you know, of all people, that state attorney generals are probably, you know, no one knows this, some of the most powerful people in the country when it comes to making life livable for most Americans. They're the people who sue the bad guys, support the good guys. And the Republican candidate for attorney general in Missouri just did a campaign commercial in which he took a barrel of forbidden literature, like books, you know, books about people who don't love the way that, you know, supposedly normal people love, put them in a barrel and shot at them with a flamethrower and said, this is what I'm going to do as attorney general. The Democratic Party has not run a candidate against her for attorney general. So there's going to only be one candidate on the ballot in Missouri. Now, you know, when I pointed this out on Twitter, all these super sophisticated, know-it-all Democratic partisans and consultants said, well, don't you understand Missouri is a Republican state? It's a waste of resources. No one wants to run a losing campaign. I'm like, it's not this campaign we're worried about. It's the ones 20 years from now. People got to get used to the idea of thinking about the Democratic Party as a group of people that are on their side. And that doesn't happen overnight. It's a long-term project. And that's what you know Howard Dean's 50-state project was all about. And it really was an intra-party civil war between the elites run by Rahm Emanuel and the insurgents run by Howard Dean, who was, by the way, not a radical, <laughs> not even a leftist in a lot of ways. He was a balanced budget guy who the DLC used to love in the 1990s. They just decided that a lot of this was venality on the part of consultants who didn't want their business model to be ruined. And, you know, this is when the die was cast for this decades ago. The 2004 right. election, Howard Dean was supposedly not electable, and they chose the guy who supposedly was electable, and of course he wasn't elected. So, <laughs> la-di-da, as Annie Hall would say. Rick, you wrote a book called Nixon Land. Yes. So you know a lot about Nixon. Compare Nixon Land with Trump World for us. Well, you know, a, a lot of the resentments are similar. A lot of the kind of political energies that he was animating were very similar, right, as I point out. A couple things are different. The kind of things you hear on Fox News every day or talk radio every day, you would hear then, but you would hear them in kind of letters to the editor. <laughs> you know, right-wingers didn't have that kind of platform for their kind of stuff. So that kind of institution building, Roger Ailes specifically built Fox because he dreamed of what they could have done had they had media to fight against the prosecution of Richard Nixon for being a criminal. So that's one difference, the kind of advance, the advancement of right-wing infrastructure. The other is that Richard Nixon, you know, he was a master dog whistler. The dog whistle, as we all know, means, you know, something racist or nasty that you say to appeal to racists that only they can hear because you're saying it in code. Silent majority was a perfect dog whistle. It was, it's such a good dog whistle that I didn't even realize it was a dog whistle until like 10 years after I wrote the book. What do you call people who are African-American or Hispanic in America? They're quote unquote minorities. He said, I'm for the majority means I'm against the minorities. It's perfect racism. And through a story that's kind of complicated, maybe not. It has a lot to do with just the personality of this one guy, Trump, who said, wow, we don't have to do this anymore. You know, the dog whistle became a train whistle. And he would just say it. Yeah, he would say they're not sending their best. They're sending their rapists. At the 2016 Republican convention, it was like something out of Orwell's 1984. Up on the scoreboard, they would show the pictures of these beautiful, innocent white women who had been murdered by the invaders. Now, we all know that you know, immigrants have lower rates of committing crime than native-born Americans. So this is just nonsense. It's fascism. But it's, a lot of it is just kind of like taking the stuff that was always kind of at the fringes of Republican conventions outside the walls and putting it inside. 
We've been talking with Rick Perlstein and the author of books on presidents like Nixon and Reagan. And he's coming out with his forthcoming book called The Infernal Triangle. When is that book coming out? Next year. It's in the oven. Well, thank you very much, Rick. And to be continued. Thanks for all you do, Ralph. I want to thank our guests again today, Dean Bruskin and Rick Perlstein. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis with, in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to capitolhillcitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each program. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. We read them all. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, here's the rest of Ralph's conversation with labor leader Gene Bruskin. Plus, Gene gives Steve a quick history lesson. Gene, have these unions who are demanding ever more vigorously as the casualty toll spirals upward, and we've talked about the lowballing, the existing number of casualties, nobody could take this kind of pounding and destruction and only lose one and a half percent of their population in the right, crowded right. Gaza Strip. Have these unions demanded from their friends in Congress, and you do have a lot of friends in Congress, that there be a, a public hearing, a congressional hearing on the voice of labor here and how it's changing? Why not a hearing in the House and Senate? Has there been a demand to take it beyond the level of demand? Yeah, that's a good suggestion, Ralph, and I will put that to people. We haven't really called for a hearing, and there hasn't been a hearing on this issue in general, except the hearing about how much money should be given to Israel. So I think that that's a good message, and we should sort of take that back to the network. Yeah, it's hard to believe that Jill Biden's own union, the three million member National Education Association, has a big building here in Washington. If they go to their friends on Capitol Hill and the other unions you mentioned, UAW, the SEIU, that they're going to be turned down. If they get a hearing, then the visibility of what you and others have worked for would be tremendously enhanced in front of millions of Americans who don't know about this transformative position of so many unions in the country. Gene, I'm wondering if you can give us an historical perspective here, because you, you mentioned Vietnam and Iraq. What was the labor movement's position on that, and was it effective at all? I think, you know, originally the AFL, formed in the late 1800s, just considered themselves part of being 
patriots, you know, and that was so relatively unbroken. During the Vietnam War, there were eventually, by around 1970, there were a lot of labor opposition begun to surface, but it was sort of way on the heels of the movement. And I mean, of course, during World War I, there were the Wobblies and Eugene Debs, you know, that opposed the war, and they got jailed for that. But one of the changes that I was a part of was during the Iraq War, and of course, it would, everybody already, all the workers hated Bush already by the time he was doing that. We were able to mobilize a movement that was both inside the labor movement, but not under the direction of the organized labor movement. We organized bottom up, local by local across the country, where workers in a given local of the IBW or the UAW, whatever, brought resolutions to the floor of their union and had votes and eventually moved it up to conventions. And eventually, we were on the floor of the AFL-CIO. And we had brought Iraqi workers from the oil industry and from all the different industries to the United States. We actually made a film meeting face to face and toured them around the country so people could see these were not terrorists. These were workers actually had a union tradition that Hussein temporarily destroyed, but went way back to when the British came in. And so there was this whole powerful sense in the AFL vote when they didn't want us on the floor, but once the Iraqis were there, once the support was there, they let us on the floor, all the mics spoke in support, and we won unanimously for the first time in history at an AFL-CIO convention condemning the U.S. war in Iraq. So I feel like that was sort of a breakthrough. Unfortunately, when Obama became the president, the reluctance to sort of have that same kind of edge with the Democratic president watered down a lot of the work of U.S. labor against the war. Some of them, like myself, ended up retiring. So this is a whole resurgence, and a lot of the former activists in U.S. labor against the war have been the ones that have come forward and started this new movement. So we don't have a grand and splendid history, but in the 21st century, we see that the signs of change are there. Indeed. Up next... Rick Perlstein explains why age is more than just a number when it comes to the president of the United States. President Biden's age, similar complaints were leveled against Ronald Reagan. We now know that he was showing signs of Alzheimer's in the lead up to his second term. He ended up getting reelected by a landslide. There is a myth of Reagan that he was immensely popular and that his senescence in the second term worked in his favor. Did he leave office as a beloved grandpa figure? No, no. <laughs> he left office as a very tarnished, not particularly popular figure who was seen as someone whose senescence had either, who had either caused or allowed to happen this terrible unconstitutional scandal of selling arms to our enemies in exchange for hostages who never were released in the first place, right? That's the Iran-Contra. The age thing is pretty interesting with Reagan because it was just a huge issue in the 1980 campaign. And he just would make jokes about it. He just leaned right into it. You know, he would say, you know, back when I, you know, uh, read my first book on a stone tablet, you know, or something like that. And by 1984, yes, it's absolutely true that he was showing straight up signs of dementia, like Donald Trump, but, you know, probably not like Biden. He's probably in pretty good shape mentally, even though he looks, you know, kind of physically pretty frail. And 
I discovered something actually that I hadn't been realized. I, I watched an interview with him after the election, and he kind of implied that he was only going to serve one term, which tragically was kind of what Biden implied too. He said, me and Kamala Harris bridges the next generation of Democrats. Power is very seductive. You know, when you're in the White House, and you pick up the phone and you can get any food you want or something like that. I don't know what it is. It was a real graceless. Walter Goodman, the New Republic, has a really good piece about Biden's insistence on running for election as, as a, a sign of poor character. Among a guy that who really impressed me with his character, the fact that he was able to kind of turn his back on the kind of neoliberalism that he pioneered in the 70s as a Democratic senator. You know, the fact that he turned his back on a lot of the sidling up to bad guy Republicans and saying, if I'm friendly enough, you know, they'll negotiate with me. Well, he's shed that. He shed that. Not a lot of us can change. It's very impressive that he was able to change. But in this one way, you know, both in his, you know, doubling down on kind of 1967 ideas about what Israel is, and when it comes to his own indispensability, he's failed us. He's failed us. And, you know, I can only pray that uh, we'll dodge the bullet of a guy who offers a comforting story to Americans but has the worst possible intentions if he gets to be president in 2025. And that's, you know, Donald Trump. Not to pile on to the gerontocracy. <laughs> um, one of the questions you asked in your book, Reaganland, was how did this man with no obvious political future become oh, uh, Reagan. the spearhead of uh, the right. of American conservatism? And is that the same question we're asking with Trump and Biden? How are these people with no um, obvious future? Um, well, I mean, Biden has an obvious future. He's the president, right? I mean, but the thing about Reagan in the kind of 70s, as a guy who was kind of seen who, you know, was kind of over the hill, and he'd run for president in 1976 and lost. And people would say, well, that was interesting. You know, now we don't have to, you know, we're not, not going to have to worry about Ronald Reagan. One of the important things to understand about Ronald Reagan, which is maybe a little different from Biden, is one of the things I discovered and kind of really kind of digging into the archives and the research and looking about how, how they plan the campaign is how little of it was selling conservatism. It was literally just this poll driven campaign in which they said, you know, what would be most popular among the electorate. Right. And, you know, for conservatives, they they knew Reagan was conservative. Right. So they just kind of assumed that he was just saying this in order to get elected. Right. But the reason he was able to um, appeal so deeply to so many people who wasn't conservative was basically, you know, I saw poll books that were like thousands of pages long. You know, they were literally focus grouping individual lines in his speeches, right? So it was, uh, you know, the, the, not for nothing was the guy who ran this part of the campaign, a guy named Dick Worthlin, who was his pollster. He won ad man of the year from Advertising Age magazine. So it was really a very sophisticated and a very uh, successful sales job. Um, I don't think, I don't suspect that that kind of sophistication and competence and strategic and tactical shrewdness is the kind of thing we're seeing within the Biden campaign. I hope so. Well, but, you know, one of the things that happened, I'm sorry, Hannah, one of the things that happened in the decades since Reagan was elected is people are kind of much less responsive to issues. They're not always responsive to issues, obviously but are much more um, interested in kind of, you know, kind of the social media stuff, how people are presented as personalities. And the Democratic Party is kind of way behind on that. Just like the same people who thought, oh, if we just give all these states free Medicaid, you know, then Ob Obamacare will work because people are rational. 
you know, the, they they say, well, um, if this is an ideology called or either um, deliveryism or popularism, that if we just do popular stuff, people will say, oh, Democrats are delivering for us. But first of all, they only find out what the Democrats are doing by absorbing media, which is in itself inaccurate and corrupt. And second of all, people don't really even think of government uh, as doing what government does. People aren't like, we're hiring someone to run the National Weather Service, which Trump wanted to privatize and is absolutely you know, indispensable to having a functioning economy. They say, you know, which one's tripping and falling? Finally, David and Ralph have a spirited discussion about the wider social and political responsibilities of unions. Legally, do unions have a fiduciary duty to focus solely on the minimum basic agreement in worker safety and not dip their toe in foreign policy? Well, not in any federal law at all. It all depends on the union charter, and they're pretty broadly written to allow unions in rank and file to advance in justice anywhere. For example, we worked with them on Capitol Hill on consumer protection laws that never mentioned workers, but everybody knew on Capitol Hill that workers are consumers. And so we were allies on consumer protection legislation. So because it's a seamless web, almost anything affects workers these days, tax policy, foreign undeclared wars, and so on. I don't think there's any problem there. It's not like brokerage firms required by the SEC to demonstrate a fiduciary responsibility for their investors. And corporations don't have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. No, that's a myth. A very convenient myth, by the way, for corporate executives perpetrate. My concern is this is a wedge issue that ends up giving people excuses not to join unions. That's what I'm worried about. Well, it's changing as we speak. What's happening is that people like Gene are integrating the seamless web of an unjust plutocracy and militaristic government. See, just like he said, you know, who fights these wars? It's workers, usually low-income workers. They come home, they're devastated, they have shock syndromes, don't get adequate treatment. And of course, they come home to communities that are deprived of public services because of public underinvestment, which goes into F-35s or whatever. And you know, they're reworking their public philosophy here, David. Is it really one of the most encouraging things in 35 years I've seen? On October 7th, my sister and I were talking and I said, there goes Medicare for all. What's going to happen is the Jews are going to abandon the left because they're against Israel and there'll be no solidarity. The same way the Women's March during Trump's inauguration got splintered because some woman had a hold an Israeli flag and it turned into a conversation about Israel as opposed to. You're right. It drains away a lot of progressive energy from domestic issues. That's been happening. For decades now. To me, it should be money, that it's class struggle. The richest 1% only want money, so they're focused. They don't care if you're a bigot, a misogynist, a, a leftist, as long as you That's want right. money. And to me, the, right. the left should just focus on money. Join me. I don't care if you're a racist, an anti-Semite, an Islamophobe. We're fighting for their money, period. Don't complicate it. 
that to me is the winning message. When we get bogged down, when we're holistic, we fall apart. On the other hand, you can get too specific and not focus on what's going on in the world. What they're doing is they're focused on the whole thing in Gaza and then bringing it back home. If they just talk money, it feeds a certain level of parochialism and cul-de-sac thinking by rank and file. You know, like George Meany once said, he was asked, what does organized labor want? And he said, more. Yeah, more. At the same time, he was hiring the worst pro-imperialistic labor guys working with the CIA and the Defense Department to smash democratic regimes all over the world because they were accused of being communist ploys. See what I mean? So you gotta you gotta worry about that. You can't just say more. You gotta connect it. Because there are a lot of powerful forces saying less and they have to be called out by proper names, like the military industrial budget. The problem is you have to get workers to vote to join a union. Well, that's where the demand comes in. The unions have never demanded repeal of Taft-Hartley, 1947, the worst anti-labor union organizing law in the Western world. And they never even make it an issue. They never say, okay, we're going to endorse you, Joe Biden, and put our press release explaining why Taft-Hartley needs to be repealed and make it a public discussion. You've got 95% of the American people don't even know what it is. I remember on October 7th, right around our union, Steve and I belong to the Writers Guild, and there was this dust up because the union didn't speak out full-throated enough against the October 7th attack. And I remember thinking, yeah. I don't care what my union thinks about October 7th. What, what, what does that have to do with why I joined the union? Well, you just play it out. You know, it's just going to increase the military budget. It's going to put pressure to cut taxes on Lockheed Martin. And it's going to distract attention from AI, which is going to really go after your members from being regulated. It's all connected. It's like Barry Commoner said about the environment. We make these distinctions because our culture can't handle integrated thinking. So we make these distinctions and divide up natural phenomena of a social organization artificially. And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. On Monday, the Senate voted through a mammoth $95 billion foreign aid package furnishing Americans assistance to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. Beyond arming Israel, however, this bill also bans funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, one of the key agencies providing relief to Palestinians in Gaza, even as starvation in Gaza deepens to lethal levels, and removes previous requirements that the president inform Congress of additional weapons transfers to Israel. Voting against the bill, Senator Merkley of Oregon said, quote, The campaign conducted by the Netanyahu government is at odds with our American values and American law. I cannot vote to send more bombs and shells to Israel when they are using them in an indiscriminate manner against Palestinian civilians, end quote. In another speech, Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland said, quote, Kids in Gaza are now dying from the deliberate withholding of food. In addition to the horror of that news, one other thing is true. That is a war crime. It is a textbook war crime, and that makes those who orchestrate it war criminals, end quote. Yet despite correctly identifying the Israeli starvation campaign as a war crime, Van Hollen voted in favor of the arms package. The bill now moves to the House, 
which failed to advance it just last week. House Speaker Mike Johnson has gone on record saying he opposes the package because it does not address immigration at the southern border. In Michigan, a movement is underway to deny Joe Biden the state's delegates by encouraging voters to check the box for uncommitted in the upcoming Democratic primary. So far, over 30 Democratic elected officials in the state have co-signed this movement, including Mayor Abdullah H. Hamoud of Dearborn and Representative Abraham Ayash, Majority Leader in the Michigan House. This list is expected to grow as Biden's untempered support for Israel puts Michigan Democrats on increasingly perilous footing. More information is available at listen2michigan.com. If you're a Hulu subscriber, you may have seen the pro-Israel propaganda the streamer has been running. Put simply, the ad, created by Israel's National Public Diplomacy Directorate, begins like a tourist ad for Gaza, using AI-generated images, and then shifts to showing the reality on the ground there, ascribing all blame for conditions in Gaza to Hamas, with no mention of the fact that Israel has blockaded Gaza and turned it into what major human rights groups call, quote, the world's largest open-air prison, end quote. With this ad running constantly, locals in Los Angeles have mobilized to protest Hulu's offices, a rare escalation that the company would be wise not to ignore. This from Vice. Two stunning stories on Boeing. In an LA Times article, Ed Pearson, a former Boeing senior manager, is quoted saying, quote, I would absolutely not fly a Max airplane. I've worked in the factory where they were built, and I saw the pressure employees were under to rush the planes out the door. I tried to get them to shut down for the first crash. End quote. Joe Jacobson, a former engineer at Boeing and the FAA, said, quote, I would tell my family to avoid the Max. I would tell everyone, really. End quote. Meanwhile, the American Prospect reports that the lawyer who exposed Epstein's sweetheart deal with Alex Acosta has sued the Department of Justice in an attempt to force disclosure of what is in the deferred prosecution agreement reached by Boeing and the Trump administration following the 737 MAX crashes. We hope this recidivist corporation finally gets its comeuppance. The Federal Communications Commission has issued a rule banning AI-generated voices in robocalls. Specifically, the commission expressed grave concern about the potential for manipulation of voters in the upcoming presidential election. AI-generated voices in these calls would likely be capable of deceiving voters into thinking that public figures had endorsed a particular candidate when they have not. Gothamist reports at least 70 current and former employees of the New York City Housing Authority have been arrested on bribery and corruption charges. According to the report, quote, Superintendents, assistant superintendents, and other NYCHA officials accepted more than $2 million in kickbacks from contractors in exchange for over $13 million in NYCHA business across at least 100 developments. End quote. These corrupt bureaucrats manipulated no-bid contracts in a quote-unquote pay-to-play scheme to grant these contracts to contractors that paid them off. Federal prosecutors are calling this, quote, the largest single-day bribery takedown in the history of the Justice Department. According to More Perfect Union, quote, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont says his state will purchase $1 billion of residents' medical debt for just $6.5 million. Then he will cancel it all, abolishing medical debt for 250,000 people. This is the first time a state has forgiven medical debt at a massive scale. Quote, this demonstrates what is possible for Democrats at the state and federal level. No excuses. UFCW Local 400 reports that the Fresh Farm workers have ratified their first contract. This marks the culmination of the first-in-the-nation successful farmers' market unionization effort. Among other provisions, this contract includes, quote, higher wages, vacation time, improved workplace conditions and safety standards, and grievance and arbitration procedures, 
end quote. Yuval Lev, a market operator who was on the union's bargaining committee, said, quote, we're proud to codify these hard-fought gains in this historic contract and continue doing the work we love to serve the community. Vox reports the U.S. has been pressuring Mexican President AMLO to help stem the flow of migrants across their northern border. But signaling that Mexico will no longer blindly do the bidding of the United States, AMLO has demanded certain conditions from the U.S. if they want his help. These include, quote, suspending the U.S. blockade of Cuba, dropping all sanctions against Venezuela, and giving work permits and protection from deportation to at least 10 million Hispanic people living in the U.S., quote. Yet this eminently reasonable set of demands is considered a non-starter within the Washington foreign policy consensus. Finally, Pope Francis has responded to conservative critics blasting him for allowing the church to bless same-sex marriages. Speaking to Italian newspaper La Stampa, Pope Francis said, quote, No one is scandalized if I give my blessing to an entrepreneur who perhaps exploits people, and this is a very serious sin. But they get scandalized if I give it to a homosexual. This is hypocrisy. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been saying.